Experience the beauty and emotion of Lent and Easter with Christianity Today's newest devotional, Easter, in the everyday. Thoughtful readings from a variety of pastors, theologians, and writers invite you into the emotional stages of Christ's journey, from humility to hope to love. Beginning on Ash Wednesday and ending at Pentecost, this digital devotional is perfect for individual or group study. Get it today at orderct.com easter24. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes and set aside time to explore the reality behind a major cultural event. Today we are talking about Amplify Women, which is a new series that is up at CT Women about women and the blogosphere and platform and um, has also generated a lot of conversation on social media. I'm Morgan Lee and I'm an assistant editor at Christianity Today and I'm joined by Ted Olson. Hi, Ted. Hi, Morgan. I am glad to be back. Back from where, Ted? I've I've been overseas for four months in, in uh, Nairobi, Kenya. So while I've still been working for CT, it's you know, it's a nine-hour, eight-hour time difference, and uh, happy to see everyone back in the office. It's awesome to have you here. So Mark is out of town this week, and so Ted is an awesome person to come join us, especially since Mark says every week that he doesn't like social media. So <laughs> <laughs> I think that makes Ted a superstar to be here. All right, Ted, who is our guest today? Our guest is Sarah Pulliam Bailey, longtime friend of CT, longtime colleague, uh, currently religion reporter at the Washington Post and editor of Acts of Faith. Uh, which, uh, Sarah, what do you call Acts of Faith? Is it a blog, a vertical? <laughs> what? What is? I knew this would come up. I knew this would come up. So, we internally we do call it a blog, but I hate the word blog. Like I feel like the word blog has kind of gone out of fashion. It's associated with you know these uh, kids in their parents' basements. Um, there's no editing. There's no authority. There's no structure. You know, so I think it has bad connotations, and it does have editing. It goes through several rounds of editing. It is it is not just a willy nilly. Here's how I feel. Not that all blogs have been that way, obviously, and we can talk more about that. But so I like to call it a vertical, but people. People don't know what verticals are. You know, it's just it's basically our religion kind of section online that has a mix of news, commentary, analysis. Some of it has reporting, some of it doesn't. It's a mix of of all these different kinds of pieces. Right on. Yeah, we we have struggled with the same the same language here uh, at CT as, mm-hmm. as you know. But yes, uh, in fact, speaking of, uh, Sarah was online editor here for four years and was in some other capacities before that. Um, was great working with her. We were sorry to see her go, but thrilled uh, with uh, all her work since then. She was, Thanks. in fact, oh, yeah, uh, uh, co-founder of Hermeneutics. Was that a blog? That that was long that was debated. A that yeah. was a blog. And yeah. we debated about whether to call it a blog. Wasn't it edited, though? Whatever. It was edited. Um, and it was some regular contributors and some non. Yeah. So Sarah is our guest. Once again, happy, happy to have you here, Sarah. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So let's get into the discussion right now. Last week, CT Women, a vertical on our site. <laughs> published an article with the title, Who's in Charge of the Christian Blogosphere? Written by Tish Harrison-Warren, an Anglican priest, the piece argues that over the past 15 years, lay Christians have become spiritual authorities, mostly because of blogging and social media. Warren writes, quote, Just as the invention of the printing press helped spark the Protestant Reformation and created a crisis of authority, the advent of social media has catalyzed a new crisis in the church. And by the way, we will be linking to this article 
in the podcast description so people can read the rest of it. The article has so far generated a tremendous amount of feedback on social media with dozens of voices discussing the internet's role in elevating traditionally marginalized voices, the extent to which a call to institutions accrediting people can inhibit people from speaking up, why denominations should follow the Anglican Church's lead and ordain women, how to better support women's voices, and why this tension within the church should not just be relegated to women's ministries. This piece is one in a multi-week series that CT Women will be doing. It's the first one that came out, and you can follow the series, which is called Amplify Women. So this article took a specific look at how the blogging and social media phenomena was affecting women's ministries and women's discipleships. But this week on Quick to Listen, we'd like to discuss the role of the blogosphere in the evangelical community at large. How has the internet changed? How one creates a platform in the Christian world? What does the internet make possible for the church? And what does the internet make impossible? And how has this affected men's, women's, and greater church ministries? Just remind everyone that Quick to Listen is made possible by everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today magazine. And we invite you to do that at orderct.com slash quick to listen. This is a subscription that gives you 10 issues throughout the year, as well as full access to all of our site. So anything that has been locked previously to subscribers, you have access to and to all of our archives and Christian history and all that good stuff. Again, it's orderct.com slash quick to listen. And your subscriptions really make it possible for us to be doing this show and hopefully giving you a broader perspective of what's going on in the world. Before we get into some of these questions, we always have a gut check. That is the time where myself and my co-host, which is Ted this week, kind of give you our visceral reactions to everything. So Ted, take it away. Yeah, uh, my gut reaction was, well, first of all, I was I was flying on a uh, 28-hour journey coming back to the U.S., so I missed a lot of the follow-up on Twitter until I got back, and then I was a little bit surprised by how just how much uh, response there was online. This was easily one of the, the most tweeted about articles that CT has run uh, recently. So that was a little bit surprising given that I think that uh, some of the issues that uh, Tish raised about, about blogging and about some of the, the pros and cons are something that we've been a little bit discussing since, uh, you know, since blogging, social media has started. And so I was surprised to see quite so many people follow up. We could talk, we'll talk a little bit more about that, why that might be in a minute. But my gut reaction was, really? This is blowing up quite this big? My gut reaction was just feeling frustrated at watching people, I felt, talk past each other again on social media. And my other gut reaction was I managed social media for CT and we had really good Facebook comments come off of this post. Like there were some thoughtful conversations being had on Facebook and that was surprising to me and encouraging and kind of awesome in the same way. And they were talking about different issues than what was happening on Twitter. And I was excited to see those things being discussed. All right. So I want to get into this like larger discussion of what's going on. And I'm wondering, Sarah and Ted, you too, I'm wondering if you guys can give us a, a history of the Christian blogosphere as you know it. You know, when did you see it start? When did it kind of come into its own? I started working professionally around 2008. And I know that blogs were happening beforehand. And Ted can tell you, he started something called Web Blog for Christianity Today. So he probably has a better... Great name, Ted. Um, yeah. He probably has something, you know, an idea of when did he first realize like this was going to be a thing? Yeah, this was, I started in 1999 uh, before, you know, Blogger was around and before some of these uh, very uh, tools that made it easy to to create websites and, and uh, blogs. We called it Weblog because, I mean, there weren't very many blogs out there and it was just, this is the Christianity Today Weblog. We didn't need to be creative because 
the word was so new. It probably wasn't the the first Christian blog, but it was it was probably within the first half dozen or so. There were a number of really popular Catholic blogs coming out about the same time. You know, Andrew Sullivan started a little bit afterwards. He became, of course, a huge uh, force in terms of popularizing blogs and and just writing a blog that became tremendously popular for uh, a number of different websites. But you had people like, uh, you know, interestingly enough, Joe Carter, who now is at uh, the Gospel Coalition at some other places. He was pretty early, uh, 2005-ish, I think, is when he started Evangelical Outpost. Um, but he was fairly early as a blogger. Rudy Carrasco, uh, DJ Chang, Mark D. Roberts, LaShawn Barber. A lot of these people were active, if not in the late 90s, then, then in the early 2000s. And like I said, there's a fairly active Catholic blogosphere of Amy Wellborn, Eve Tushnet, uh, some others. Uh, and there was some nice cross-pollination. You know, we all read each other's blogs because you could kind of read the Christian blogosphere every day uh, back then. Um <laughs> And, and, I can't even imagine now. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, back in the day, I actually remember going back to uh, the NCSA, you know, what's new page. You could actually read the entire what was new on the Internet every day. But uh, that 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 dates dates how old I am. But yeah, even in 1999, early 2000s, we were debating like, well, what is a blog? How how personal does it have to be? A lot of people were using it simply as a means of, uh, of self-expression, um, kind of an online diary. My approach and the approach of some of the others I'm mentioned were a little bit more reader-focused, public service-focused, like news roundups or um, analysis, you know, the, more of the reader in mind than as a kind of public diary. You know, that obviously has has emerged over the last several years, especially with the the rise of, of kind of the, the Christian mom blog um, and some of those other areas, uh, which you, I, you can speak more to yeah. that, Sarah. So that's, I mean, when I was coming in to CT in 2008, I, I just remember thinking, I read a piece, a profile in the New York Times, my evil competition um, that uh, it was about this Mormon mommy blogger. And I was like, and, and it was this like, it was treated as this ph- phenomenon. Like there are these religious bloggers who are writing about their everyday lives and they're, they're diving in deeper than just like what I cooked for breakfast. It's like dealing with depression and, and motherhood and these, and these really serious issues um, connected to motherhood. And I remember I went, you know, I, I actually just became a mom a year ago. So I was not in- interested in a, on a personal level, but I just knew that this mommy blog phenomenon was, was hitting women at, on this level that they, they didn't really have this community before. They didn't have this outlet before. Uh, they had to go through traditional gatekeeping, official publishers, official magazines. They had to go through these official, and, and those in the past have been dominated by men. And so all of a sudden you have these blogs that are talking about things like postpartum depression and, and women are like, finally, you know, people are talking about these experiences that, you know, so many women face, um, but hasn't really been elevated in traditional publishing spaces. So I just remember around that time thinking, you know, we should capitalize on this mom, mommy blog phenomenon in some way, but we should do it specifically for evangelical women. And not that there weren't outlets for evangelicals, if for evangelical women at the time, there was TC, today's Christian women, there were outlets for women, but we, we really wanted kind of a space that was thinking about theology and thinking about these, uh, some deeper intellectual issues, um, thinking about the news, thinking about, you know, foreign policy and not that in some ways, some of the, the stories that we published or the pieces that we published could have very easily gone into Christianity Today magazine proper, but we were trying to cultivate kind of this community of smart, thoughtful, intellectual, theologically minded evangelical women. And, and I thought 
it had a good run. You know, I know it's been folded into the vertical of CT women, but for its time, I thought it was pretty good. And you're talking about hermeneutics just for... Yes, hermeneutics. Yes. Uh-huh. And so that, yeah, this was a blog that what lasted um, almost 10 years, eight years. Which is a long time for a blog to, to it keep is going. A long time. Yeah. 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 And so looking back, so Caitlin Beatty, um, a, another former editor at Christianity Today, she and I started it together. And I was kind of like, here's my big vision. You actually do the logistics of it. You figure out who the right people are, who you edit. She edited it on a daily basis. So she really kind of ran the day-to-day part of it. But I constantly was like, okay, here's the big vision. Here's what we want to you know, bring to the table. Here's, here's what's kind of buzzing on the internet. Can we get in on that? So we were a really good team on that. I just want to take a little detour to semantics really quickly. Why did you call hermeneutics a blog as opposed to a vertical? I mean, the pieces were still getting edited and solicited. Right. No, it's a good question. I mean, at the time, like blogs were really hot. Everyone was starting a blog. Everyone, you know, publishers were looking for bloggers. And so at that time, in the way I think we can talk about this too, I think podcasts have in some ways um, replaced some of that blog hotness factor in terms of, you know, what advertisers and publishers are interested in. But at that time, we thought if we create a blog, you know, it'll have this feel of this is going to be a little more casual. This is not we know that it's not going to be as, you know, as thoroughly edited as a cover story for Christianity Today. So it gave this expectation of this is going to be a little more casual and conversational and we can kind of play around with this. We're going to encourage comments. We're going to try to create a community around this. And again, this is back in 2008, back when blogs were still pretty big, I think, at the time. So one thing that I'm thinking of as we go kind of think about the themes that are raised in Tish Harrison Warren's article is, did calling it a blog also enable you to bring people who may not have had traditional credentials to speak on those issues without having people kind of investigate or say like, you know, what gives them the authority to talk about that? I don't know. So it's it's hard in terms of authority and credibility. So I've just been doing a bunch of reporting on the Catholic Church. And in the Catholic Church, there are official structures and institutions and committees and bishops, you know, who are appointed by the Catholic Church who go through these formal process. You don't just randomly decide to become a priest. You know, you go through an official uh, process for that. But obviously within evangelicalism, there isn't that sense of authority and structure in all of the parts of evangelicalism. In fact, some some of, you know, this big broad tent we call evangelicalism thrives because it doesn't have this hierarchy and structure that we see in the Catholic Church. And, you know, this goes back 500 years, right? So uh, I think when it comes to publishing, I think there were some questions about who gets to write, who, you know, do they have to have a blog? Do they have to have a, an, an affi- affiliation with some institution? And I don't think we, and originally when we were first figuring this out, I really don't think we thought through those questions very deeply. Um, I think it was kind of like, like we knew of Karen Swallow Pryor and she was connected to Liberty University. Well, Liberty is a little more conservative than I think CT crowd is used usually used to, but I think, you know, she's a friend of someone. And so that's how we got connected to her. Amy Julia Becker came highly recommended by Andy Crouch. So it was kind of like, who, who do you know, who knows somebody else? I think we did think about who, who do they represent? Who are they going to reach? We didn't have any kind of statement of faith or anything like that they had to sign. But I think the assumption was they self-identified as evangelical at the very least. I mean, that's the big difference, right, between the evangelical perspective on authority and and the Catholic view on authority um, is very much 
you know, where does authority come from? It's it comes from from God Himself through through Scripture. So we were definitely looking for can these people, uh, can these writers, can these women write through kind of a scriptural lens, uh, help people understand the Bible better, help people understand God better in, in within within kind of a biblical a biblical mode. And I think that's that's something that I think Tish uh, was getting at in her article. I think that's something that you know CT still uses. It, in in some ways, if you'll get a book, let's take a, let's move out of the blog world for. A minute and just think about like what what is it that credentials a a a book to a reader you have at least three modes of credentialing um one is you know the little bio right uh you know uh sarah pauline bailey is you know and you have some institutions in that in that bio that that credential you so washington post uh christianity today uh, what have you? The other thing in a book that often credentials you are the, are the blurbs. You know, uh, your your friends, your network, your kind of other people who who have other credentials. Usually, they they are ID'd with some sort of larger trustworthy institution. They say, yes, this book is worth reading, or this this you know this author is a smart person, uh, and that's another thing that signals to the reader this person should be listened to. Uh, the other thing is the publisher, uh, and this is more common in the Christian world. You know, the who is publishing the book is a is a form of credentialing. If you're getting something from University Press or from uh, Zondervan or, or from a Christian publisher, you're saying, okay, I know these guys don't publish, uh, they, they don't they don't try to publish heresy. And we've seen some recent, you know, big fights when there have been books that people have said, wait, I thought I could trust either this publisher or or this kind of company that owns this publisher. Th- those have been big, big blowups. Um, the other one that I would add, just this is less, I think this is a much bigger deal that's, that's dropped as Amazon's gotten bigger and as... Uh, Christian bookstores have died, but it used to be that this was the main thing that a Christian bookstore would do, was like, if we cover it, if, I mean, if we carry it, we have vetted it. Um, and so that that aspect of credentialing, that kind of institutional uh, imprimatur, you know, had that had that kind of uh, authority. What you didn't have, and this is what Tish is getting at, is she's, you know, her, her saying, yes, for the evangelical, and uh, in, in theory for the Christian, authority proceeds from from God as revealed in Scripture. Uh, scripture is our constraint, but ultimately, also the church, right? The like the actual form of of uh, the institution of the church should have some sort of constraining or credentialing or or at least safeguarding of hey, you know that that thing you wrote that that was not biblical. Um, she's saying, you know, boy, you know, in an ideal world, shouldn't the church be much more involved in making sure that what we're what we're publishing? What we're writing, what we're reading, you know, is it's consistent with Scripture. Um, is, isn't that a better setup than uh, some of the other structures we've we've kind of uh, defaulted to? Whether that's parachurch businesses, or you know, in in the social media context, you know, these small tribes and communities uh, that are created around personalities. It's somewhat similar to the blurbs on the back of a book, but it's much more. It's just much more tribal. You know, for blur, the best blurbs on a book are going to be cross-tribal. They're going to have, a, a, they're going to be really diverse. But online, you know, if people have a number, they, this person has X number of Twitter followers, you don't know what that really means. It was interesting to see a shift in publishing to see like these publishers would pick up this blogger and and their institutional affiliation would 
no longer be some formal, like their church or, you know, some institution they were connected to. It was their institution was their blog. The assumption was they have a following and they have a, a community that they're, that they've like cultivated. Right. And I see that now with podcasts, right. They run the podcast X, Y, Z. It's almost like they get credibility through by building these communities, um, as opposed to an institution has granted them, you are approved for this institutional affiliation. I just thought that was an interesting shift, you know, going back to those days of when publishers were trying to find, you know, new authors. And I think too, um, both with podcasts and with blogs, it's been, it's so hard to sustain one as a personality and we can talk about personalities, but it's, I, I feel like most people have like a book in them or maybe a good blog post in them. Them, maybe a good article in them, but it's so hard to create this like community built around a personality or built around, um, you know, someone's ministry. And obviously some women are very good at this, but, um, I think, you know, most people who try to do it, I think it's hard to sustain. Oh, you know, I, I've heard a lot of mom bloggers once their kids, you know, departed the little, yeah. Once that, once they go to school, right. Yeah. Once they go to school, their kids are like, mom, I don't want to be you know, featured on your blog. I don't want to, or the, you know, the moms just en- enter a different stage of life and they're less interested in like having people pe- peek in on their daily lifestyle. So I just, I feel like there's, uh, it's so hard to sustain past a couple of years. I wonder if part of that is actually in those early baby years, like it is, it is incredibly lonely. Um, and I'm not saying, you know, that, that the vast majority of women bloggers are are mothers of, of infants, um, but I'm saying that the rise of that blog world was heavily driven by new moms. That can be such a lonely time. And I think as, as the kids go to school, it's easier to actually have real, you know, conversation. Either a number of women go back to work where they have real relationships or they're more free to have, you know, uh, lunches with with grownups or, or these kinds of things where, you know, real community can replace kind of the virtual community that that uh, Facebook, Twitter or a, or a mom blog uh, can provide on a temporary basis. Speaking of Facebook and Twitter, I really think social media has just really killed blogs. And this is part of why, you know, I don't like calling Acts of Faith a blog because I feel like everyone knows, like, it's so hard to get people to go to a blog homepage anymore. But social media, you know, I'm in a few mom groups and, you know, post... I don't need a daily blog to follow or to be a part of, but I like being able to ask moms, you know, young moms, like this morning I asked, like, what are some good lullaby potential like soundtrack or albums or Spotify lists I can listen to with my child that doesn't, that don't make me want to lose my mind. Like, you know, little things like that, where I'm like, I don't need to be part of a blog community, but I like having this little Facebook group community to ask like a really minor question too. And it gives me a little sense of community that other moms are in this at the same time, separate from whatever else I'm doing, you know, professionally or personally in, in my daily life. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m. we're we're in in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. 
and why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But they, all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. So then I guess it may go back to, you know, this headline for the piece, who's in charge of the Christian blogosphere? Is that the right question to be asking? Or is that a question from 10 years ago? And now it's more who's in charge of you know, evangelical social media. Yeah, I mean, you even you even see this in, I think, the reaction to Tisha's piece. I wonder if uh, the response to that piece would have been so strong had things Christian women here not been uh, such a Can major— Can you tell people what that is? Yeah, sure. So it was a hashtag on Twitter uh, in the week or the days uh, preceding— uh, Tisha's piece, uh, a number of, of women were posting, you know, comments uh, about, you know, things only Christian women hear in churches. You know, it started off on a somewhat negative note, you know, with people saying, you know, that women women are told to, you know, to pipe down in ways that, that men are not uh, in churches. But then there were a number of, of people who came, uh, a number of women who posted on Twitter using that same hashtag saying, you know, well, there's there's positive things too. And then there was an uproar about the positive versus the negative. Yeah, and I remember there were also ones for that women of color tweeted out too. Yes, that's right. I remember that one. And, and, and I, that became not just a popular hashtag, but a fairly hot, uh, meaning like, you know, a, a fairly debate, debated hot hashtag where people people got pretty wound up about about it and about people's responses and the responses to the responses. And, and you know, you know how this goes on Twitter. Twitter is, is kind of a constant outrage machine. Uh, and and that was the uh, that was where the outrage was uh, for a few days. And I think a lot of the conversation about Tisha's piece was a follow up to that uh, yeah, it was interesting for me to read all the people who th- on Twitter who thought that the point of um, Tish's article was w- women should not be ordained women. Women should not be speaking about theology uh, and spirituality because women should not teach men, which is weird given that uh, Tish is an, is an Anglican priest. But it was it was interesting to see that kind of argument emerge, people reading into reading into it as an attempt to silence to silence women in the church. And so that's I think that's one thing where social media has become such a especially Twitter, but but to some degree. Facebook, and especially in the post-Trump mode, becomes so driven by what are we outraged about today? What are we upset about? That it colors everything that gets discussed there. It's like, who's upset about this and why, you know, why is this, why is this an outrage? That's the first question that's that's asked. And I, I'm glad that there are places to retreat to, like Sarah was talking about, smaller closed groups on Facebook that you can go and say, uh, you know, and ask questions to. But a lot of the personality-driven stuff on, on social media is more driven by negative emotion than than kind of a positive uh, a vision or even self-expression like blogs used to be. Okay, so two points. I think Tish's pointing to one person in particular, which is Jen Hatmaker, and all of that that's connected to LGBT conversations was, I think, for a lot of people, very distracting as opposed to like setting it up for a larger conversation. I think she assumed too much about what people would agree with her on that point. You know, Tish writes as someone who is ordained in a denomination um, where women can be ordained, which is one element of the problem that's kind of being discussed there. But even aside from that, I think that there is this sometimes a call for the local church to be more involved with things. The thing is, is, you know, having worked at CT less than both of you, 
um, have or had. I can still tell you that we there are so many responses where, well, the local church needs to get involved with this. Well, the local church needs right. to get involved with it. Well, that's the answer to that. And my question is, is like, is that realistic? And if it's not realistic, maybe there needs to be a different, in, you know, a different institution or a different set of infrastructure that needs to arise to take care of this stuff. If it really is on the scale of the printing press, you know, in terms of magnitude, I'm not necessarily sure that our existing institutions are going to be equipped just to take on one more thing. Yeah, no, I and I think you that's a really good point. I do think that we often confuse this is a job for the church with this is a job for the senior pastor. Um, you know, and that, and that's something that, you know, a lot of the examples that Tish gave were more uh, bishop, priest, uh, you know, senior church leader reading my articles. I'm in an Anglican church too, so I, I tend to think uh, along those lines. But at the same time, I'm in an Anglican church where a lot of that work would be done by someone else in the church, would be done by uh, a pastor of spiritual formation uh, or, or someone who's involved in the spiritual formation team. Uh, so we have a number of spiritual directors who are part of a hierarchy, who are part of a, uh, a formal church structure, but it's not all being done by the senior pastor or even by, you know, um, paid staff. So I don't, I don't think it's realistic to ask senior pastors to read every blog post by anyone in their church who's blogging. I, I think that's a mistake, just in the same way that I, I think it's a mistake to ask a senior pastor to preach on every, you know, thematic, you know, like, a, you know, tooth decay Sunday or something like that. But churches under, they overestimate how much work good church discipline is and discipleship making is, and they under-resource it in their churches. There, you know, you see it emerging. You see informal mentoring happening a lot. And, you know, a lot of people are really looking for for mentors. That's best done in a in a church structure where having it done in a church context oh, just allows you to do so much better uh, disciple making and is able to take a lot of the kind of stigma out of church discipline that people just associate with people kicking people out of the church. Well, I just think about the kind of Christian complex, uh, like the publishing industry and the podcast industry of just so many people don't feel like they're individual church is meeting all of their needs. So they, you know, download a, you know, Tim Keller sermon or whatever, or an Andy Stanley sermon, whoever they like. And, um, and they supplement so much of their Christian life from these outside materials. Um, and I, this is way, going way back before blogs and all of that, but I think blogs and podcasts and things have you know, amplify this. How much does your church really meet your individual needs? How much are you pouring into your individual communities? You know, you go to these conferences to get an inspirational jolt. Um, you go see Beth Moore at the local, you know, big arena or whatever. Um, I, I'm not saying any of that is wrong. I just think it's interesting to, to see how much money is and time and energy and power and influence this, this industry, like Christianity today in some ways, you know, is a little bit a part of that, but also a critique of that maybe in some ways. But a lot of the sort of anxieties that were raised out of this in the responses to this article were this feeling of women have not had voices, you know, and especially women of color have not had voices in this industry, in the, in the industry that I'm talking about this, you know, people are listening to primarily white men. And so um, now that the internet has given a voice and a possibility for these women um, and, and then to say, wait, 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 we need checks on this. I could see why that 
could be, you know, heard as frustrating for people. I'm just ideating. I don't necessarily love every idea that I'm like thinking of now, but it would be great if there was some sort of like certification program. <laughs> where, And I say certification because I think of that in my head. It's like you're not getting a degree, right? Like the level of work that you have to go through is different and the, the cost is also different. But even if it's something that was with like all, you know, Christian major publishers came together and came up with something that in some ways legitimized, I hate using that word, but legitimized their writers or, or let people know. I, I do feel like a lot of times these publishers do owe something to the fact that many women and men have taken it upon themselves to start writing and start creating. And, and many of us know that it's like hard to keep something up and to be self-disciplined to do that and to put your ideas out there and be vulnerable about that. And that it's not just always good enough to, to realize that someone has a talent and then sell them a book, you know, but there's there might be something else that these institutions more or less owe to the people who are kind of like coming up with the ideas and the content in the first place. I do think that it's important for the local church and it's cool hearing you talk about, Ted, how, you know, your church is designed in many ways um, to really do discipleship really thoroughly and well and in a sustainable way, right? Where it's not all put in the senior pastor, but it does seem like right now higher ed or seminary is going to be out of reach for a lot of people for logistical or financial reasons. And many church leadership programs, including churches I've been a part of, don't allow women to participate in them. And so that also can be a difficulty or bias there. And several of those things are not necessarily the best solutions anyway. You know, I mean, we are we are all too aware of people with seminary degrees who who are not worth listening to or who have squandered their authority in other ways. We're all too aware of you know, strong denominations that have drifted theologically, you know, with even though they have very, very rigid uh, you know, structures that are supposed to be, you know, doing... Uh, uh, discipleship, disciple making, and, and discipline. Those aren't necessarily answers uh, in themselves. Uh, you know, I just came back from Kenya, and this isn't a super active conversation right now, but in Kenya very recently, they had a very similar issue where, you know, uh, if you go to our website and Google uh, or permanently search uh, fake pastors, you'll see uh, several articles where we've had, you know, the pastors there are very frustrated by kind of these entrepreneurial folks who just kind of start churches without um, any kind of biblical knowledge or any kind of call or any kind of anything. And people start going to their churches. And, and it was so fascinating because I wrote a wrote about this. You had people of who are like from traditional denominations. They were pleased when the government introduced these new things. And there were a bunch of evangelical pastors who were angry at these new laws that they've tried to put right. in. Yeah. So, they, so a number of uh, people went to the government and said, can you do something to help us license these uh, churches and pastors? Maybe CT should start a little like app, like fake pastors so that you can <laughs> right. report you know, fake pastors. Here. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but it is a very similar. It is a very similar issue to to what we have now, and I think, I think the evangelical response in in general is like it's the word of God. The word of God is really the two the two edged sword, and the spirit is is moving, and the spirit does winnow. But there's an awful lot of chaff growing amid the wheat, and so we need to be discerning in who we are listening to, and we need to speak when we see a teacher uh, who is who is teaching a false gospel or who who's abandoning the true authority of God as revealed in Scripture. Well, how to do that without just <laughs> contributing to the Twitter outrage of the day is really, really tricky, but I think it's 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 what we're supposed to, it's, you know, to, to do it in love and to do it accurately 
is just that is what we're that is what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be judging all of these teachers against against the word of God. I want to pick your brain on something because this kind of came up yesterday. I was interviewing someone who had endorsed endorsed Trump, and he's uh, relatively pleased with Trump so far. And I um and I asked him, "What do you think is Trump's greatest accomplishment?" And he said, "Just this." how he's sort of discredited the media. Um, and so I was just kind of surprised by that. This is a, a Catholic. Um, and he was so happy that now people are turning to these alternative forms of media. And, you know, I don't want to be self-serving in my asking of this since I now work for the, you know, big, bad mainstream media, but I am worried about this. I am worried that we are no longer as a culture, as a society going to agree on that this is truth, right? So we're going to agree that this, piece, you know, we we can have discussions over whether certain media outlets are politically biased that have certain leanings or generally have a certain assumption about the way the world works that we don't agree with. But I am worried about this. Uh, We don't agree on the, on the gatekeepers anymore, um, for news. I think that's really worrisome. And I think it's interesting given that Trump has, has sort of discredited media and he's also given rise to their prosperity gospel. I I don't know that those are necessarily correlated, but I think that's an interesting contrast. Um, you know, that he is given uh, such a voice to these pastors who, uh, you know, preach about health and wealth gospel, the health and wealth gospel. He no longer needs to work through institutions or denominations. He doesn't need to court, you know, Russell Moore of the Southern Baptist Convention. He can kind of get around that. Uh, the official gate, you know, gatekeepers of who would normally be the policy person. So I, I just think that phenomenon is really interesting. And I, and I'm wondering why more people aren't concerned about that. Yeah. You know, he's, he's ridden this wave of questioning all institutions. Everything now, even social, even large institutions, you know, gain their credibility by, you know, personality. You know, it's just the, the rise of the personality cult in every area of life, whether it's, you know, mainstream media, whether it's uh, church life, whether it's, you know, just the rise of the so the celebrity as dominating everything. Um, even television, you know, I mean, just, you know, how much. Maybe especially television, yeah, especially I would say. Television. I think television has paved the way, right? He is, Trump is the first TV president, you know, like he is, to me, a culmination of decades of TV news culture, of cable news. And of- where he himself is more important than any ideas that he represents. And that's made clear, especially when there's flip-flops or reversals in real time, that it's about it's about the person and not the idea. That is so deep in our culture right now that it, it I don't I don't see any way to extract that in the next 20 years. I mean, it will kill a lot of cultural institutions and, 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 and goods in our culture before we are able to eradicate it. But I do think that Christianity, man, it super speaks how many, you know, how much of Christian uh, theology and spirituality speaks about the dangers of, of that, of, of personality cult and of arrogance, of pride and of following people rather than uh, rather than God. I will say that one way that I think that institutions can kind of like, yes, and what they see going on is push themselves to the limits of the voices that they can bring into their midst. I think people are far less likely to take a burn it down institution approach if they feel that that institution is doing its best to encompass things. So one of the big debates that happened over the weekend was that the New York Times had hired a Wall Street Journal columnist named Brett Stevens to write for their opinion pages. And Brett's first column, many people took as a challenge to the um, reliability of climate change. There's a lot 
going on there. I'm not going to dive into the climate change discussion. But I do just want to say that, like, I think that if The New York Times wants to gain legitimacy with a crowd that's not necessarily its normal readers, it's incumbent on them to bring in views that are outside of what people may have us previously associated with that. And I think that's true for, for lots of institutions. So I'll tie this back to, you know, this calmness you mentioned, but I feel like with Facebook, we've all cultivated and created a news feed for ourselves. And we have the illusion of this is what my friends are all talking about, right? We can, you know, log on, see who had a baby, see who's see some fun photos from a vacation. And we can see what, you know, which articles are people buzzing about now that we've kind of cultivated and created our own personalized spaces, even if, you know, it's really driven by Facebook's algorithm, not what we choose to opt into. How does that affect us when someone of, you know, not our sensibilities and not our, what we agree with infiltrates that network, right? And so we get outraged and we get, you know, how did this column about climate change enter into my space? You know, how dare the New York Times publish something that offends my uh, world? And so if we're not opting into these publishing spaces that are outside of our feeds, we're not going to get that. And that's where I think we've, um, you know, people often talk about the bubble. I think that's you know, where that comes from, we're so less likely to encounter people we disagree with within our own spaces. Yeah. And I think one of the things that we just individually can do is to watch to watch what happens when we post. Right. I think one of the reasons the outrage culture has grown so much is that when you post something that's outrageous or when you post something and say, isn't this outrageous? Like it gets a lot of likes and retweets. And I think that, you know, uh, a lot of us come to social media with that desire to be validated, to be loved, to be, you know, honored, respected, to get all these, you know, social bumps. Likes, yeah. Yeah, to get to get likes. I mean, literally to be liked on there. Uh, we all want individually to be one of these, even a mini celebrity, even if even if we don't have, you know, hundreds of thousands of followers um, within our little sphere, we go on there and we get really sad when we post something and it only gets a like or a heart or whatever, um, or, or not nothing at all, then, you know, we, you know, we get, we get frustrated by that. And I think being aware of that and keeping that in check and asking like, why am I posting this? And to watch ourselves whenever we go back onto that platform to say, did anyone like my stuff to say, yep, you know what? That is, that is an insidious thing that's happening to me right now. And I need to back away from it because this is not about glorifying myself. That is not what I'm supposed to be doing here. Well, thank you guys for the really robust discussion and for all of our listeners for sticking in for some tips about practicing holiness on social media at the end. As always, you can respond to this believe it or not, on social media. You can go on to Twitter. We're on Twitter at CT Podcasts. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash CT Podcasts. And we invite all of your thoughts and feelings and reactions. Um, and we may even read a couple on the show, depending on how thoughtful they are. Now we're in the type of show we call Precious Moments, which is where people share something that is bringing them joy in their life and also where they can be found on social media. Sarah, you want to go first? Sure. If you follow me on social media, you know I love board games, Ted and I and Morgan, and I share this love for board games. But one board game that has recently brought us a lot of joy is called Secret Hitler. Have you guys played this? It's been suggested in my game group a couple times, but we've actually oh my never goodness. posted it out. It is. You have to. Please 
please play this at CT. Tell me, you know, who, who's Hitler. Um, it is so much fun. It is, if you played Avalon or Mafia, those are similar games. Yes. But, so Secret Hitler is really just the, a few adjustments to the mechanics and it is so good. You, it is such a great group game. It's usually, I would say, you know, eight to 10 people is pretty perfect. So you're trying to, to figure out who's fascist and who's liberal. And this isn't like necessarily a commentary on the current climate in Washington, but it is just such a great game. Like it's just so fun. It's such a good group game. And I just won our last game. So I'm still kind of on a high from it. Oh, you told you. Have you tried two rooms and a boom? No. Is this good? It's, it's good. It plays like up to like 50 people. It's, it's really crazy. So that it's, it's in that same social deduction game. Oh, where, where can we find you on social media, sir? Uh, so Twitter is us Pulliam. Awesome. I am destroying Ted's precious moment right now by keeping him from CT board game lunch. Which was going to be my precious moment. Actually, it's funny that my precious moment also board game related. I have been away for four months. I did meet some nice board gamers in Nairobi that we played with several times, and that was great. Took a suitcase full of board games to play uh, with, with my kids. But I am really looking forward to the game groups that I have here, including the CT game lunch on Wednesday. Wednesdays, which is awesome, um, and also uh, my my other game group, which is is getting together this Saturday. I've been I've been out. We will. Pro- I don't know what we're gonna play it, but um, looking forward to it. Are you online? I'm online at Ted Olson on Twitter is probably the best place to connect with me. So you guys talking about board games and Ted talking about game lunch is a reminder of how much I really love my colleagues here. And something that brought me joy was a big discussion I had about Nirvana and System of the Down and Lincoln Park and Red Jumpsuit Apparatus and have I missed, Screamo Band. How did I miss this conversation? That happened in my office this morning. Oh. And it was... So good. I got just so excited listening to all this old music that I haven't listened to in 10 years. Well, that's not true. But Linkin Park is still so good. And then we played this mashup of uh, Linkin Park and Jay-Z, if anyone uh, remembers that album. <laughs> <laughs> it was... It was <laughs> anyway, Linkin Park is coming to Chicago in August. So now I'm like... Coming to Linkin Park? If only. If only that was true. Oh, man. Next um, time we talk about Nirvana, you have to pause the conversation and come get me. Okay. I have I have many thoughts. We'll do a quick to listen sometime. No, it won't wouldn't be a good quick to listen. <laughs> also, all things considered, this is a really amazing episode tying the LA riots to Nirvana to changing someone's life. And that's also gotten me listening to Nirvana all week. We need to end this so that Ted and I can go play games. Thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. Thank you, Sarah, for joining the show. This podcast is a production of Christianity Today, and you can find our other podcasts by searching iTunes for Christianity Today. Remember to head to orderct.com slash quick to listen, where you can support the show. The show is produced by Richard Clark and Cray Allred. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, the best way to do that and show your support is by going and reviewing us on iTunes. See everyone next week. Oh,